Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio. You are all amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1110, with a release and air date of Saturday, June 6, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1110 of This Week in Amateur Radio. Don Grady, N2SRK, is appointed the new Rocky Mountain Division Director. The ARRL Spring 2020 Section Manager election results are announced, and we will have the results. Amateurs around the globe are reporting 6 meters is very hot. Astronauts Bob Benkin, KE5GGX, and fellow astronaut Doug Hurley are settling in on board the space station after an historic launch. The 2020 Huntsville Hamfest is canceled. We will have the details. IARU Region 2 Executive Committee meets via a teleconference. We'll tell you what that was all about. There was an amazing opening this past week on 2 meters, and an amateur in Utah helps rescuers assist people trapped in a minivan floating in a river. We will have the story in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, talks about the latest technology, including the recent SpaceX Dragon launch to the International Space Station and how it is designed to attract young people into the sciences. Australia's own Anno Benshoff, VK6FLAB, takes a close-up look at the humble coaxial cable. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOY, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill takes a look at radio during the early and mid-1930s. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, talks about precautions that you should be taking when climbing a commercial tower. And we will have part two of a three-part talk conducted by QSO Today host Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, with Amateur Radio's number one cheerleader, Gordon West, WB6NOA. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in sunny, cloudy, rainy, take your choice, Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our news bureau just outside Albany, New York, in the Geek Cave studios, I'm Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. And reporting from our amateur radio station on our farmette in the Catskill Mountains, where the garden corn is up six inches, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where we're now looking for the thermostat on that yellow ball in the sky because it's hot outside. I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. 
ARRL President Rick Roderick, K5UR, has appointed Dan Grady, N2SRK, of Aurora, Colorado, as the new Rocky Mountain Division Vice Director. With more details on this appointment, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from Newington. Grady will succeed Robert Wareham, N0ESQ, who has stepped down from that post to accept appointment as Colorado Section Manager, taking the reins from WM0OG, who resigned effective June 1 to relocate. A native of southern New Jersey, Grady was licensed in 1992 after a middle school technology teacher inspired his curiosity about amateur radio. He served in the Amateur Radio Emergency Service and Office of Emergency Management Communication Support Teams in southern New Jersey and in the Philadelphia area in the 1990s. After relocating to Colorado in 2014, he helped to found and now serves as president of the Parker Radio Association, a 150-member ARRL-affiliated club. Grady enjoys hunting DX on HF and contesting, as well as digital modes. Grady holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Phoenix and pursued religious studies at Seton Hall University. I am delighted to welcome Dan to the ARRL Rocky Mountain Division team, Rocky Mountain Division Director Jeff Ryan, K0RM, said. His strong leadership skills and his boundless enthusiasm for amateur radio will be a great benefit to the members of ARRL as well as the amateur radio community at large. Grady credited Ryan and the division's section managers for keeping the division healthy and strong. I am humbled and honored to be working with Division Director Jeff Ryan, as well as the section managers throughout Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Utah, he said. I am equally excited to be working for and serving ARRL members in this leadership role. To join the ranks of the exceptional people is an honor, and I can assure our membership that the Rocky Mountain Division will continue to set many amazing standards for the amateur radio community in the years to come. He is a vice president and executive team member for a sheet metal manufacturing, fabrication, and wholesale company headquartered in Denver and is a state chapter board member for a national sheet metal contractor association. Three incumbent ARRL section managers were returned to office while one challenger outpolled an incumbent section manager in contested elections this spring. Section manager ballots were counted on Monday, June 1st at ARRL headquarters. Three other incumbent section managers were unopposed and will continue with new terms of office while one candidate was declared elected as the only nominee for the volunteer position. In Illinois, incumbent section manager Ron Morgan, AD9I, edged out a win over two challengers. Morgan received 605 votes, while Thomas Beebe, W9RY, garnered 600 votes, and Scott DeSantis, KB9VRW of Crystal Lake, picked up 288 votes. Morgan of East Peoria has been Illinois section manager since February 2017. In Maine, challenger Robert Gould, N1WJO of Casco, topped incumbent section manager Bill Crowley, K1NIT of Farmingdale, 196 votes to 179 votes. Crowley has served as Maine's section manager since 2014. In Indiana, incumbent section manager Jimmy Mary, KC9RPX, was re-elected with 515 votes to 384 for his challenger Brian Jenks, W9BGJ of Fort Wayne. 
Mary of Ellettsville has been section manager since July 2018. In Oregon, David Kidd, KA7OZO, was re-elected over challenger Kevin Fox, KUOL, of Damascus, 728 votes to 386 votes. Kidd of Oregon City has been section manager since 2018. Bill Ashby, AA6FC of San Jose, California, was the only nominee for the Santa Clara Valley section manager position. He will succeed Brandon Bianchi, NI6C, who decided not to run for a new term after serving since 2012. Several sitting section managers were the only nominees in their respective sections and were declared re-elected. Kevin Bees, KK4BFN in Northern Florida, Paul Gayette, AA1SU in Vermont, and Patrick Morietti, KA1RB in Wisconsin. All terms of office begin on July 1st, 2020. You are listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. In recent days, 6 Meters has been living up to its name of the Magic Band. On May 30th, around 1200 UTC, Rich Zwerko, K1HTV in Virginia, worked Nicholas Svenenikov, TT8SN in Chad, who answered his CQ on FT8. After the quick exchange, AK1HTV alerted several local 6 Meter DXers, who were also able to snag the rare one. TT8SN was able to work into the U.S. Mid-Atlantic and Arkansas regions as well as West Virginia on, on FD8 before switching to CW at about 1300 UTC and then alternating between the two modes over the next hour. Eves Colette, 6W1TA in Senegal, also showed up on the band, and K1HTV and other stations were also able to put him in the logbook as well. So the six-meter e-skip season has begun, Zwerko remarked, who knows what kind of magic the band will serve up. What's being called a historic opening on six meters occurred on May 31st when David Schaller, W7FN, in the Pacific Northwest, saw the band open around 1430 UTC and stay open for a couple of hours. W7FN worked 12 DXCC entities on FT8 on the 50.323 MHz band. Other stations had similar success. Schaller said longtime six-meter DXers from his area reported never having experienced a six-meter opening to Europe like the one on May 30th. On May 28th, Bill Steffi, NYNH, just south of Pittsburgh, reported working three European stations on FT8 around 2200 UTC. Six meters has been great this week. Steve Fetter, WA8UEG in eastern Pennsylvania, observed after working stations in the Caribbean and in Europe. From Greenland to Bo Christensen, OX3LX has been showing up on 6 meters on FT8 between 20 through 30 and 0000 UTC. He's been reported working in the mid-Atlantic stations with a good signal. Mark Murray, W2OR in Florida, took advantage of an opening to Japan on the evening of May 22nd. Both Florida stations each worked 20 or more Japanese stations, and one was said to have had 40 stations in Japan. W2OR said it was an incredible number for an opening that didn't last. On the previous evening, a similar opening occurred from Wisconsin and other parts of the upper Midwest. J. 
Jim Research, 81C, reported that stations in Wisconsin and Minnesota were able to work Hawaii on 6 meters, starting around 2300 UTC on May 24th. The stations he made contacts with included NH6Y, KH6ZM, and KH6U. The stations were using FT8 during all of these openings. John Sweeney, K9EL in Illinois, worked three Hawaiian stations from 2240 to 2250 UTC. Confirmations came through quickly on Logbook of the World 2. He called it the best 6-meter opening to Hawaii from W9 land that he'd ever seen. A radio amateur is one of two NASA astronauts headed to the International Space Station following a May 30th launch of a SpaceX rocket that marked the return of human spaceflight to U.S. soil for the first time in almost a decade. The Saturday launch from Cape Kennedy also marked the first time humans traveled aloft via a commercial spacecraft. Astronauts Bob Benkin, KE5GGX, and Doug Hurley had been set to go into space on May 27th before unfavorable weather scrubbed the flight. Crew Dragon has separated from Falcon 9's second stage and is on its way to the International Space Station, a SpaceX tweet said. Autonomous docking occurred at 10.30 a.m. EDT on May 31st. The so-called Demo-2 is the final major test for SpaceX's human spaceflight system to be certified by NASA for operational crew missions to and from the ISS. Additional background and launch video from the Kennedy Space Center is available. NASA astronauts Bob Benkin, KE-5GGX, and Doug Hurley are settling in on board the International Space Station after arriving aboard the first commercially built and operated U.S. spacecraft to transport humans into orbit. Benkin and Hurley headed into space on Saturday, May 30th in the SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule, powered by a Falcon 9 launcher from Cape Kennedy. They docked at the ISS Harmony module on Sunday afternoon. Space Station Commander Chris Cassidy, KF5KDR, and crew members Anatoly Ivanishin and Ivan Wagner welcomed their new colleagues. The whole world saw this mission, and we are so, so proud of everything you've done for our country and, in fact, to inspire the world, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine told the crew. This represents a transition in how we do spaceflight from the United States of America. NASA is not going to purchase, own, and operate rockets and capsules the way we used to. We're going to partner with commercial industry. This would apply to future moon missions, Bridenstine added. For the past nine years, human crews were transported to and from the ISS via Russian Soyuz vehicles. After they reached orbit, Benkin and Hurley named their crew Dragon Spacecraft Endeavour as a tribute to the first space shuttle each astronaut had flown aboard. The Dragon capsule docked to the ISS flawlessly and without human intervention. The SpaceX vehicle will undergo considerable inspection over the next couple of weeks as part of the process of declaring the Dragon operational. This past weekend's mission was SpaceX's second spaceflight test, Demo 2, of its Crew Dragon, but it was the first test with astronauts aboard. The Crew Dragon being used for this flight test can stay in orbit about 110 days. NASA would require an operational Crew Dragon spacecraft to remain in orbit for 210 days. 
Development of Europe's first-ever lunar lander was agreed upon by European Space Agency member states in 2019, and now ESA is seeking your ideas for science and robotic missions on the moon. Set to launch on an Ariane 64 rocket later this decade and return to the moon on a regular basis, the large lander will provide unprecedented opportunities for science and robotics on the lunar surface, and your mission could be one of the first. The call for ideas comes hot on the heels of ESA signing an agreement to start building the third European service module for NASA's Artemis program. This module will drive the spacecraft that ferries the next astronauts to the moon. Andy G0SFJ is going to propose an amateur radio mission using low signal technology in an amateur band with easily achievable home technology on the Earth side. This is different from the AMSAT NA gateway proposal but will doubtless complement it. Outreach and STEM learning will be key outcomes from an amateur project of this nature, together with a general uplift of amateur skills. G0SFJ invites anybody interested to register on the ESA website and make a similar proposal with your own version of the basic idea. All proposals will be reviewed by ESA and merged where appropriate. We're looking for ideas that align with ESA's strategy for exploration to inspire, create new knowledge, grow international cooperation, and create economic growth and industrial competitiveness. Any company, organization, or person can submit their ideas for the EL3 program. The deadline for submissions is July 3, 2020. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. The International Amateur Radio Union Region 2 Executive Committee held its quarterly meeting on May 28th via video conference. In addition to routine business, the panel was briefed by IARU Region 2 Workshops Coordinator Augusto Gabaldoni, OA4DOH. He reported that, as of the meeting date, nearly 400 people have subscribed and more than 2,800 have viewed the first four workshops, either live on Zoom or on YouTube. Participants have been from almost every country in the Americas, as well as some from Asia, Europe, and other parts of the world. Feedback has been very positive, Gabaldoni said, both from participants and from Region 2 member societies with a common theme. When are you doing another one? All IARU Region 2 workshops are free and open to anyone interested. They are available live on Zoom and also on YouTube, where they are recorded and available for future access. The introduction to each workshop explains what IARU is and the role of the member societies in representing their country's amateurs to their regulator and other organizations. Participants are encouraged to join and support their IARU member society if they are not already members. High demand exists for additional workshops in both English and Spanish, especially for more advanced WinLink workshops, amateur satellites, digital operations, and other topics for additional future workshops. Gabaldoni told the executive committee he will be scheduling more sessions in the near future. These will be announced on the IARU Region 2 website under events, 
with a new online registration system courtesy of webmaster Christian Buenger, DL6KAC, whom Gabaldoni thanked for his quick response and support. Other executive committee business included an amendment to the IARU Region 2 standard operating procedures to formalize the approval process for changes to the Region 2 ban plan between general assemblies. In the past, changes could only be approved at a session of the General Assembly, which meets only every three years. When the next General Assembly meeting is more than six months in the future, the new process provides for the Band Planning Committee to recommend changes to the Executive Committee for consideration. If the Executive Committee agrees with the changes, member societies are informed and have 60 days to object, if they disagree. If only one objection is received, the changes are approved and will be incorporated into the Region 2 band plan and reported at the next General Assembly. On Friday, the 29th of May, 2020, there was an extensive sporadic e-opening across Europe which reached as high as 144 MHz, allowing stations across the continent to make many fine contacts. The most extraordinary contact, however, were probably from the Cape Verde Islands off the coast of Africa, to Poland on 144 MHz. The longest path recorded for the FT8 digital mode seems to have been from D4VHF to SP5MXU in Warsaw, a distance of just over 5,600 kilometers. To put that into context, the same distance from Cape Verde Islands to the north would reach as far as Oslo, the capital of Norway, or as far south to the whole island of Iceland. The equivalent distance to the west would reach as far as the U.S. capital of Washington, D.C. The most likely mode of propagation was via a maritime tropoduct from the Cape Verde Islands to the coast of Spain and Portugal, and from there via sporadic E to Poland. It all began when amateur radio on the International Space Station Educator, Joanne Michael, KM6BWB, a science coach at the Wiseburn Unified School District in Los Angeles, challenged another Eris partner group to a mid-altitude cross-continent balloon race. Michael has led her students in several balloon launch attempts from the Los Angeles area each year. Given the disruption caused to schools by the current pandemic, Michael wanted to shake things up a bit and give students worldwide a unique distance learning treat that could safely be accomplished during the pandemic. She challenged Ted Tagami, KK6UUQ, from Eris Partner Magnitude.io to a mid-altitude cross-continent balloon race, and Tagami accepted the challenge. Tagami plans to launch his balloon from Oakland, California. Eris Partner ISS Above inventor Liam Kennedy, KN6EQU of Pasadena, California, got wind of the idea and asked to participate too. Eris Magnitude.io and ISS Above are ISS National Lab Space Station Explorer partners that work to inspire, engage, and educate students in science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics topics, and to pursue careers in those fields. The story caught fire on social media, inspiring one teacher to figure out how to initiate a launch from her school. Let's get planning and get your thoughts and ideas, and let's make this happen for the students, she said in a post. Once the balloons are airborne, students can track each balloon's location, altitude, and temperature, which are fed automatically via the automatic packet reporting system. 
Educators and parents around the globe can excite at-home youth with this initiative, Eris said in announcing the challenge. Students can tally and track the states each balloon travels through and plot altitude versus temperature and other parameters. Also, by researching weather patterns, students can make assumptions from their own data. This could include speed variations due to weather. They also can predict each balloon's flight path and when they might cross the finish line. For more information on the balloon race on the final results, we go to our own Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. Rich? Amateur radio on the International Space Station partner ISS Above inventor Liam Kennedy, KN6EQU of Pasadena, California, has been declared the winner of a mid-altitude cross-continent educational challenge balloon race. His balloon was one of four launched on June 1st from the West Coast with the goal of being the first to reach the Eastern Time Zone. Coming in second was the balloon of Ted Tagami, KK6UUQ, from Eris Partner Magnitude.io. On May 31st, a fourth team joined in the competition, Steve Potter, K7HAK, and Trevor McDuff of Washington. Tagami launched his balloon from Oakland, California. Kennedy got wind of the idea and also came on board, launching from Pasadena, California. Michael set her balloon aloft in Los Angeles, while Potter and McDuff's balloon lifted off from southern Washington. Eris, Magnitude.io, and ISS above are ISS National Lab Space Station Explorer Partners that work to inspire, engage, and educate students in science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics topics, and to pursue careers in those fields. The story caught fire on social media, inspiring one teacher to figure out how to initiate a launch from her school. Let's get planning and get your thoughts and ideas, and let's make this happen for the students, she said in a post. Students can still track each balloon's location, altitude, and temperature, which are fed automatically via the automatic packet reporting system. The call signs are KM6BWB-9, KK6UUQ-8, KN6EQU-2, and K7HAK-11. Eris said the race initiative gave students the opportunity to tally and track the states each balloon traveled through and plot altitude versus temperature and other parameters. Also, by researching weather patterns, students could make assumptions from their own data. This could include speed variation due to weather. They could also predict each balloon's flight path and when each might cross the finish line. For more information on the balloon launch, lesson plans, and the live stream video link, visit the Eris Mid-Altitude Balloon Race webpage. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Uh, are, you watching the, uh, are you watching the launch? I shouldn't, you know. First rule of radio, never talk about uh, competing content. But what, in about an hour and a half, a little less, we're going to have the first manned space launch in, uh, what is it, since 2011, nine years, since the Atlantis the shuttle Atlantis. That was the last one. Now we're going back in space. 
the Dragon. And then this time, it's it's what's interesting. It's NASA, yeah, but it's but it's a a vehicle, a launch vehicle, developed, created by a private space entity, commercial space. That's a big difference. In this case, Elon Musk's SpaceX. And you could tell there's a little Elon. <laughs> there's a little bit of Elon in this launch. Elon Musk, who is also, besides SpaceX, which he founded in, I think, 2002, and its stated goal is not to, you know, supply food to the space station. That's just an interim goal. Its stated mission, its long-term goal, is to put a man on Mars, or woman, on Mars, on Mars. Elon has his, well, Elon's a character, isn't he? He's very committed to this notion that we gotta, we got to get out of here. <laughs> Some people, you know, will say, oh, you know what would be good to fix the uh, the planet, you know, so that we can stay here. But Elon says, no, 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 let's not fix it. Let's just get out of here. Let's go. Let's evacuate. <laughs> and it starts with a mission to Mars. So that's what SpaceX's goal is. And, you know, they're pretty far along. Here we are with a manned mission in the Dragon vehicle. You also know there's a little, little Elon in this because there's some things about it that are very Elon. For instance... The uh, dragon has LIDAR. LIDAR uh, is, they even call it autonomous docking, (laughs) like the Tesla. It will, well, that's good. It will uh, dock itself. And if you've ever, there is an online simulator from NASA and SpaceX for the docking simulator. And uh, if you've done it, it's hard. It's uh, iss-sim.spacex.com. And it, it is uh, using the Dragon X controls. And you have the... Uh, it's pretty cool, actually. Cool is a word you're going to hear a lot during this launch. Everything's cool. It feels like uh, the broadcast, which I've been watching on NASA TV. You can also watch it on YouTube Live. There, again, I plugged a competitor. That's okay. That's okay. I understand the excitement people have around this. I do, too. If you're into tech, you're kind of into space, right? That's kind of... They're related. It's a lot of tech in this stuff. I grew up watching the, as a kid, you know, the Gemini, Walter Cronkite sitting there, the Gemini, Mercury, Gemini, then the Apollo, as man goes to the moon. I, I'll, I'll never forget it. That was a developmentally important part of my life. So it's exciting to watch. I had the TV on this morning, <laughs> hours before. They do a big, long broadcast. It, the other bit of Elon is, and this is NASA, modern NASA too understands that it, a lot of what NASA does these days is marketing. A lot of it is about winning the hearts and minds of the American public because, you know, there are people who will say, oh, we shouldn't be spending all this money on, on uh, manned space missions and all that stuff. I think we should. It's a small fraction of the federal budget. Other countries are doing it, China and Russia. And, uh, I think it's important that we be doing it. It's for pure research, but also just for the inspirational excitement of it. It's good It's good for us to have something to look up to, especially these days. When down here on planet Earth, it seems like the whole world is melting. It's nice to think about something else, right? Something more positive. So he's got the LiDAR. It looks like it was designed. It looks like it's a movie, which I think is a kind of a mistake. It might be better to look a little more utilitarian only because there are a small, tiny people, percentage of people who think the whole thing is fake and the moon landing was faked and it was all shot in a Hollywood stage. This really looks Hollywood. 
It does. The NASA, the crew, the capsule crew, they look like ninjas. They're dressed in black with big numbers on their back. And, of course, they're wearing masks, as, as, as we should be, to protect the astronauts. Astronauts aren't wearing masks. They've been in quarantine for weeks. So they're, they're safe. But you don't want to infect them. You don't want to take COVID-19 to the space station. That would be bad. That would be a bad outcome. So they're all wearing masks. And they, they're, but they're in black. You know, I remember in the old days in the, in the Walter Cronkite era, they were all, everybody's dressed in white, clean suits, right? And it's a white room, the clean room and all that stuff. Now the, the crew is, the, the astronauts are wearing white. And by the way, spacesuits straight out of a sci-fi movie. You bet. Streamlined. They got iPads strapped to their knees. Cool looking, you know? And the, and the ninjas that are putting them, getting them into the capsule are in all in black. The capsule itself, you know, it's woo, smooth lines. And then the seats, this is very, very Tesla. The seats, they put them in the seats, they strap them, in, and then the seats rotate up to get them in position. They never did that in the old days. The old days, they get them in the seats the way they're going to be. The seats are fixed. No, we want a motor. It's just cooler that way. Just kind of cool. <laughs> the Dragon X has four seats. They're only using two for this. This is a test mission. But, you know, some things never change. Because I remember one of the things I remember about watching Walter, Uncle Walter, is the holds, the long holds. And Walter was so good. They used to call him Old Iron Butt. Seriously. He was famous for just being able to sit in the anchor chair for hours. We're three hours into the hold on Apollo 4 and... He's got, he's, all he's got, you know, nowadays they got graphics, they got, I mean, it's such a different experience. They got satellites, they got people all over and in interviews. They're even checking the Twitter feed and the Instagram feed. Okay, I could do without the picture of the cats in the space rockets and the, <laughs> but you know, hey, it's NASA. We got to, we got to promote, we got to, we got to be where the kids are. Got to get the kids. So they're on the Instagram and they're showing the Instagram feed on the feed. Walter would never have done that. Walter would never say, this is really cool. No, he didn't have to. He just, he looked and he'd say, well, you could tell this is cool, isn't it? But he wouldn't say it was cool. But Walter probably thought, that's jazz lingo. <laughs> I gotta use jazz lingo on a news broadcast. But I do remember him sitting there for hours waiting, waiting on these long holds as the astronauts sit there. I don't think they do holds anymore. I don't know. I think they, they, they called it uh, Wednesday to try to launch, too, and the weather stopped it. They said it's an instantaneous window. They launch or not. There's no waiting. It's either now or never. So uh, it's pretty exciting, you know? It's pretty darned exciting. I'm, I'm happy they're doing it. That's, that's tech, isn't it? True. Now, instead of all... Remember in, in, all the, in the old vehicle, all the Apollo vehicles, they had like a thousand switches. Just toggle. And they were, all they were doing as they were getting ready for launches, if you could see it, because they didn't have cameras, they were like, tick, flick, tick, 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 flip, 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 checking the switches, turning them on and off, make sure they're working, seeing if a light comes on. Now it's just giant, big screens, three giant, like 30-inch screens in front of them. <laughs> Very modern. I like it. I think it's, it's, you know what? Cool is good. You got to make it cool. Because then uh, the kids, they'll go, oh, this is cool. And the congressmen will, and women, members of the Congress, will say, oh, this is cool. And everybody get excited about it. I think that's good. Everybody excited and ready to go. We'll be back with more from our tech guy, Leo Laporte, right after we take this quick pause for stations along the network to identify. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are... This week in Amateur Radio.
We're about a minute and a half away from the launch of... Uh, Stage 2, lock float is closed out. Propellant fills are complete. The Dragon X vehicle, SpaceX's mission to the International Dragon Space Station. The first time humans have been launched into space from the United States soil in, uh, since Stage 2011. Two, so I'm going to leave that audio up so all we fuel, can uh, do that together Falcon because 9. I have a One feeling uh, seconds if I don't... <laughs> Nobody will, nobody will be listening to the radio. Pretty exciting stuff, I have to say. And if you're into technology, I think it's not surprising that you'd be into uh, the SpaceX launch because uh, this is technology at its highest, right? I always talk about the fact that technology is an expression of science. It really comes down to science and the scientific method, which was essentially discovered and perfected several hundred years ago Falcon in the Enlightenment. Dragon is in countdown. The notion that FTS is armed for launch. You make a theory, you test that theory. Under a minute now, the FTS, the flight termination system, has been armed. You don't believe it until it's been proven so, and then you're always Drag open SpaceX. to new theories. And if it weren't for science, we wouldn't have technology. If not for technology, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be uh, lighting this particular candle. It's very exciting. T-minus 30 seconds. It's a beautiful view. They thought it was only about a 50% chance of launch in Florida. Because, of course, May in Florida, a lot of overcast skies. But Stage 1 tanks pressing for flight. They've been given permission seconds. to launch. And they are about to go. 10, Doug and 9, Bob. 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Zero. Ignition. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA. Go SpaceX. Godspeed. Bob and Doug. That's pretty exciting. America has launched. And so rises a new era of American space flight. And with it, the ambitions of a new generation continuing the dream. 20 seconds into flight, stage one propulsion is nominal. Plus 30 seconds into this historic mission. It's Flying not just science. This is something Dragon I think. And and look at them go. As humans, we really need to look Falcon to the stars. M1D throttle down. To feel the hope. Throttling down to get ready for the period of maximum dynamic pressure. It's been a very difficult week in the U.S. We're in the throttle bucket. This helps. Reports say all systems are go. Vehicle is supersonic. We've exceeded Mach 1 on the Falcon 9. Well, I'll keep the uh, video going, but uh, I guess we have to get I have to get back up. to work now. But I'm glad that uh, I'm glad we could watch we're that historic back launch. Up the full power as we're through Max Q and a successful Copy launch. One Bravo. First time in nine years. We heard that one Bravo call out. That's just the second aboard zone that they're in. They'll continue to be on this. Until the first what age has done its And it job. looks a little they like a Tesla with those big point, screens. Bob and Doug pulling about 2.3 Gs, 2.3 times the Earth's gravity, already moving at over 1,500 miles per hour. We've heard the call out for MVAC engine chill. That's getting the MVAC engine ready to light. That'll come at about 2.44 into flight. Right now, everything continuing to look good. Next major event coming up is going to be the triple... 
will have main engine cutoff of the nine first stage engines, stage separation, and then ignition of the second stage engine to continue to carry astronauts into orbit. They're literally almost 5,000 miles. Coming up in about 20 seconds. Per hour at this point. M1D throttle down. 58 miles high. And what a view from space. It's great that we have these cameras now that we can the see engines on the first stage. what it looks like as it's happening, including pictures inside the capsule. And we have Miko. Miko. Two Alpha. Falcon stage separation confirmed. Copy two Alpha. You can hear the crew at NASA cheering, of course. The successful separation of the launch stage. All right, we have stage separation confirmed. The first stage beginning its flight back. The second stage being powered by that single Merlin 1D vacuum engine has ignited and is now carrying Bob and Doug into orbit. So quickly they get up there. So fast, almost 7,000 miles an hour now. Isn't that exciting? And I have to say, this is the first launch that really looks like a 21st century <laughs> uh, launch. They really, uh, they really made it beautiful. Beautiful craft, great visuals, big screens in front of the uh, astronauts, Doug and Bob. That's, those look like 27, 30-inch screens in front of them. There's three of them. It makes a lot of sense, really. It's so clean and so high quality. It's so professional. It probably lends some uh, ammunition to the people who say, oh, they're faking it. It's just too good. It couldn't possibly be that good. But you know what? They're not. And it's real. And it's probably the height of uh, technology and uh, and you know that's what we talk talk about i don't know if you just saw it but the amazing return of the launch engines i just think that's so incredible that they're able to bring those back uh intact and they and they land themselves uh you know one of the things i, I was talking about as we were watching the launch of uh, dragon x is that this is really the height of technology. This is this is a culmination of a variety of different technologies. We owe a lot to the space program for the technologies we use every day. Uh, I have a picture on my wall at home of the original Apollo 11 computer, the computer that landed humans on the moon the first time. And it's an extraordinarily primitive device compared to the computers that they're using today and we use even today in our pockets uh, we've come a long way, and it's really interesting to see technology uh, in its fullest expression to do something so difficult to to launch human beings safely into uh, Earth orbit and then to bring them back safely. It's remarkable. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives here on This Week in amateur radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. On March 4, 1929, Herbert Hoover, the former Secretary of Commerce, 
who had helped amateur radio during its embryonic years, became President of the United States. Less than eight months later, the nation was thrown into the Great Depression. Stock prices fell 80%, the gross national product fell 50%, and unemployment was at 25%. It did not sound like a good time to waste money on a frivolous hobby such as amateur radio. And yet, the early 1930s was the period of the greatest growth in our history. From 1929 census of 16,829, amateur radio expanded 276% in five years to a total of 46,390 in 1934. What was life like in our hobby of 75 years ago? QST was 25 cents per issue. One of the interesting columns in it was called Calls Heard, which was simply a list of page after page of call signs that were heard by various stations reporting in. Each month, hams would scan the hundreds of calls listed to see if their signals had been noticed. One of the call signs listed was W2XAF, which was not an amateur station, but rather the shortwave relay of WGY Schenectady. In fact, in the 1930s, there were so many broadcast stations with shortwave relays that the call book listed them in addition to amateur call signs. Most of the ads in QST at that time were for components to construct your own station. Tubes, resistors, and condensers, not capacitors, condensers, were displayed in full-page ads. RCA and DeForest were the dominant entities in the tube field. If you needed A, B, and C batteries, the Burgess Battery Company in Madison, Wisconsin would supply them. As the 1930s progressed, more companies appeared with kits or even assembled units. Hammerland, then known as Hammerland Roberts Incorporated, made its debut with the AC Pro, an eight-tube superhat receiver. National's new receiver was the SW3. Radio Engineering Labs, known as REL of Long Island City, supplied low-cost transmitters and receiver kits. In 1931, one of these kits was at the center of a legal battle that went all the way to the Supreme Court. RCA, which held the DeForest patents on the regenerative circuit, sued REL. Edwin Armstrong, who actually invented regeneration but lost a controversial court battle with DeForest, saw this as an opportunity to win back his patent. He purchased 51% of REL stock and proceeded to fight the grand battle once more. Unfortunately, in 1934, the Supreme Court ruled that DeForest, not Armstrong, was the inventor of regeneration. Armstrong could take some small consolation in that another of his inventions was finally put to good use in amateur radio, super regeneration. Invented in the early 1920s, Super Regeneration provides very high sensitivity on AM signals. However, it has almost no selectivity, a very high noise level in the absence of stations, and radiated a broad interfering signal to nearby receivers. It was useless on medium wave or short wave, but was perfect for the 5-meter band at 56 megacycles. During the early 1930s, Ross Hull, QST's associate editor, wrote many articles about 5 meters and the surprising propagation there. Many phone stations appeared on the 56 megacycle band, 
and almost all used Super Regeni receivers and some even operated full duplex. If UHF phone doesn't interest you, how about amateur television? In 1931, you ask? Unbelievably, the answer is yes. In 1931, an article appeared in QST describing the spinning disc mechanical television system that had been around since the 1920s. It was clumsy and crude, but it worked. The Jenkins Television Corporation of Passaic, New Jersey, offered a spinning disc kit within QST's pages. Within nine years, however, the mechanical system was rendered obsolete by RCA's all-electronic system. The Madrid Conference was held in 1932. Unlike the 1927 Washington Conference, amateur radio was not in danger and no frequencies were lost. 1932 also saw the expansion of the phone bands, but a special endorsement was needed to operate them. The old man was still around, with his letters in QST about rotten operators, rotten band conditions, rotten stations, etc. In fact, everything that didn't meet the old man's standards was rotten. For the past 15 years he had been writing, no one knew who he was. Finally, when Hiram Percy Maxim died in 1936, the ARRL revealed that Maxim indeed was the old man. By the way, since H.P. Maxim, W1AW, was still alive in the early 1930s, the ARRL station call was W1MK. Dealers included Uncle Dave Marks, whose first store was located at 115 North Pearl Street in Albany, New York. This address is significant to me because I now work in the building that stands on that site. By 1934, the Federal Radio Commission was superseded by the FCC and a new license structure with Class A, Class B, and Class C licenses was in place. In our next installment, we will take a look at the late 1930s, particularly some events in 1938. I hope you can join me. Foundations of Amateur Radio If you've ever used a spray can of WD-40, you might have wondered what the name means. It stands for Water Displacement 40th Formula. In my time as a radio amateur, I'd never stopped to think what the RG in RG58 stood for. Turns out that it too has a meaning. Radio Guide Though I have found some interesting alternative descriptions where the G stood for government. This radio guide, really a transmission line, gets a signal from point A to point B. Depending on how you construct that transmission line determines what you'll get at the other end. Coaxial cable, or coax, is a length of cable made from several components. There's the outer layer, or jacket, that protects the cable from electrical shorting, UV deterioration and water ingress, which causes all manner of problems. Inside that is an electrically conductive shield that forms one half of the transmission line. Inside that is a dielectric, essentially a separator or insulator between the shield and the innermost or central conductor, the core. Each of these components can change. On the outside, the first thing you might notice is the thickness of the cable. The next thing you might observe is how flexible it is. Below the outer surface, other things can also be altered. For example, the core could be a solid copper wire, or it could be strands of copper. It could be aluminium, silver, or even steel. It might not even be wire. Some coax, like Heliax, used in broadcasting, 
uses the central conductive tube as the core, with air as the insulator between the core and the shield. The dielectric that separates the core from the shield can be made from different materials, such as plastics, air, and even inert gas, such as nitrogen, and it comes in varying thickness. Similarly, the shield can vary in thickness, material, and construction. There are also variations that have multiple levels of shielding, such as, for example, Quad Shield RG6, common in satellite television and internet connections, that has four layers of shielding. Other aspects might not be nearly as obvious. If you're running coax down a power line, it will need physical strength. If you're burying it in the ground, it will need to be protected from water ingress. Temperature and heat dissipation are also considerations, and if you're using the coax in a nuclear reactor, its ability to deal with radiation. More commonly, if you need to run the coax around a corner, how tight it can be bent is another consideration. As the materials and dimensions are changed, the characteristics of the coax changes. Each of these are documented and standardised. The standardisation is both a blessing and a curse. So many options and so much to choose from. For example, if you compare RG58 to RG59, they look pretty similar. If you cut into them, you'll notice that they're made from similar materials. If you put them side by side, you'll notice that RG59 is thicker by about 20%. Conversely, the core for RG59 is thinner by about 20%. This also means that the dielectric is about 30% different in thickness. As a consequence, connectors for one might fit on the other, but rarely work well. These variations mean that while both types of coax are common and priced similarly, they're not interchangeable. RG59 used to be common in satellite TV installations and is still used in CCTV, whilst RG58 is common in radio communications. If you made the decision to actually go out and buy RG58, you'll come across many variations indicated by extra letters. For example, BC means bare copper and TC means tinned copper. The final piece of the puzzle in this tangled offering of transmission line is that each manufacturer has their own way of doing and naming things in pursuit of market share. For example, the coax I installed recently is known as LMR400, CNT400, WBC400 and several others. If the performance of your coax actually matters that much, I'd recommend that you spend some time looking at your options before handing over any money. All that behind the name of a piece of coax that runs between your radio and antenna. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. And now here is part two of the talk conducted by QSO Today, Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, with Amateur Radio's number one cheerleader, Gordon West, WB6NOA.
And as I traveled around, everybody wanted me to write articles for different magazines about both marine and ham radio. So I ended up with uh, writing for a CQ magazine, 73 magazine in the early 70s, popular communications, world radio, nuts and bolts. <laughs> it was fun. I'd get about 80 or 100 bucks for each article, and wow, this was easy money. So I was having a fun time, and I began to have some great times with our readership that certainly knew a lot more technical than I know, because I had graduated not with an engineering degree from college, but a business degree. So all went well in the uh, 70s, Eric, and about the mid-70s, uh, a uh, phone call came in saying, how would you like to work for a company that produces a ham radio single sideband radio? Wow, you mean a not a modified one, but a, a real single sideband. So I said, where are you located? And he says, well, we're near the Bay Area. And the company was Sideband Engineers, the SBE. And their big deal was the SBE 33 and 34. But they said, SBE, we also want you to work and head up our CB radio division. So in the 70s, uh, I did a lot of traveling from Orange County up to sideband engineers. I'd stay up there for a week and then come back down and have a, a few days with Susie here. And uh, it was also in uh, 75, 76 that I needed a good mode of transportation, so I had to retire my black Corvair that made it all the way back to the Army base at Aberdeen and launched my brand new vehicle uh, that everybody could not believe after I outfitted it with radios. And it's a 1976 Chevy Malibu wagon. And the wagon uh, worked in quite nicely because beside doing the ambulance, I was also working at a summertime on weekends as a lifeguard down just south of Newport Beach, where they had some pretty mighty waves. And where we were located, uh, you couldn't get an ambulance down there. So we had to put them in the back of the wagon and take them to the top of the hill. So the wagon did a lot of double duty. Well, then after uh, Sideband Engineers, they had me traveling all over the country uh, representing both uh, SBE CB radios as well as the SBE 33 and 34 ham radios. And they were really more involved in CB radios because that's where uh, the real uh, numbers were in selling thousands of CB radios. And with my very early years uh, as a CB radio operator on Class D CB, uh, it was fun. And they discovered that I loved to do seminars. So I would do CB radio seminars for CB radio dealers on how to better sell their CB radios. Then it happened. Out of almost uh, uh, no word, the FCC said we're going to be opening up the CB radio band in about the mid-70s uh, from 23 channels to 40 channels. Wow. Is this great for the CB radio operators? Yep. Was it great for the CB radio sellers that had thousands of 23-channel radios around? Nope. It was death. And many of the companies just uh, could not really compete with uh, any profits because for every 40-channel radio we sold, 
we gave away not only one, but maybe two 23-channel radios to try and keep uh, the sales going. So it was it was a tough time for SBE, but uh, they took good care of their dealers. They gave deals upon deals, and I have fond memories of both standard communications as well as sideband engineers for launching my career into ham radio. So reluctantly, uh, I left SBE and uh, began doing more and more ham shows. And in the 80s, uh, Susie and I uh, got married. Uh, We finally moved into our uh, permanent house here in Costa Mesa. And I was still doing a lot of seminars Working with companies from Pace uh, that Susie represented, uh, Pace Electronics for CB radios in the early 80s, as well as boat shows, because sideband engineers came out with the industry's first digital CB radio tied with high gain that came out with the first digital marine VHF. SBE had the first uh, keyboard marine VHF that we called Keycom. So I continued to do a lot of work with SBE uh, as a consultant uh, doing the boat shows. At the same time, I was just fascinated with ham radio. And that was my real love. Well, my real love was radio, but ham radio. So we uh, once had a phone call one morning, and uh, it was a, a gentleman asking about my ham radio classes that I started in the early 70s through a local college district. And he says, I understand you're doing classes And I understand that you are like doing your own little uh, question and answer book with a uh, comb bound, a plastic comb bound book that we uh, took to our local print shop. And Susie and I would uh, literally do page by page to put it together. And it was selling very nicely for our classes, selling for like two bucks a piece. And the spell says, we would like you to write a book for us because I know of your work in marine electronics and we'd like for you to maybe come out with some study books that would, along a CB uh, frame, get more CBers into ham radio. And I go, oh, okay, um, uh, what's the name of your company? And this was Bob Miller who's still alive today, good friend, lives in Arizona. Bob Miller says the name of our company is Radio Shack. Well, I said, oh, Radio Shack? You want me to do a book for Radio Shack on ham radio? Yep. So the early 80s, I started pulling together a book for Radio Shack. And at the very first, uh, the ham community goes, oh, Gordo, you're, you're selling to like CB radio operators to get them into ham radio. And I go, well, yeah, that's the way I got started. So it was a couple of years at uh, ham shows that uh, the hams would sort of scowl at me as uh, inviting uh, other radio services to join ham radio. But what they found out was those uh, CB radio operators that were getting tired of the foul language they were soon hearing in the 80s from all the truckers. Because remember, the truckers, no, not the truckers' foul language. It was just the foul language throughout the band. They came from everybody, not just truckers. The truckers actually were using CB the way you intended to stay in touch with each other till the band opened, and then they loved doing the DX. Anyway, um, I explained to them that uh, those that studied uh, 
uh, the Radio Shack book, as well as five word per minute code cassettes. Gosh, remember the cassette tapes? We had a great time. And finally, at uh, date, they uh, they said, you know, this is really working out fairly well. So for many, uh, probably four or five years, I worked with uh, Radio Shack. And uh, then a company uh, working closely with Radio Shack uh, about a mile away called Master Publishing put together a deal where Master Publishing would then take over the arduous job of printing the books, of editing the books. I would still continue to write the books. So, And they were still sold by Radio Shack, but now Master Publishing could also sell them to uh, ham radio dealers that were really thriving in the 80s uh, throughout the country. And uh, at the same time, uh, our classes were going on. Susie was so great to put up with me almost every weekend doing weekend classes. Oh, my gosh, Eric. When the hams heard, get a tech license in two days, you're out of here, Gordo. But as it turned out, when they came to the classes to see how I was giving away ham tickets in just two days of training, they saw that we would send the students ahead of time my book, we'd send the students taking my classes ahead of time the home study materials. They would see all the correspondence between these students. So by the time they came to my weekend class, two days, these students could probably pass the test because they knew they were involved in something that uh, required some work, required plenty of homework ahead of time. And then the two-day class is when I showed them beside the Q&As on uh, uh, learning the material. I then applied it to the real world of ham radio with demos, lots of demos. We'll be back with more from Gordon West, WB6NOA, right after we pause for stations to identify. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And uh, in our classes, it gave me an opportunity to say, wow, I wish we had a ham class back when I was studying because before then, uh, the league certainly had their good technical manuals, but they were far too technical for me just to get an entry level or a general class ticket. And while I tried to learn the material, it just wasn't the same of working the real stuff, getting my nose out of the book and nose into uh, the tubes and transistors in these radios. So in the late 80s, um, the uh, ham classes going strong all over the country. We also offered eight-week classes, but I found out that the eight-weekers through the college system were not near as popular as get your license in two days. But, of course, you do have to home study ahead of time. And that was my uh, hook that would reel these folks in, was to uh, promise them a two-day class and then hit them with all sorts of home study and my fun uh, comments and uh, little newsletters to our students to make sure that they would uh, continue to go ahead. And they did. 
So in the early 90s, uh, the classes were going just great. Uh, I'd do a class uh, every couple of weeks here in uh, the local area. And then I started doing classes as far south as San Diego, uh, including a class in Mexico for the USA ham license for mariners. Then I started doing the classes as far north as Alaska. And uh, these ham radio classes were quite effective because all of the students had to study my stuff ahead of time. And that helped me be sure that my books were accurate, that master publishing was working over, and that all of the uh, Q&As really related to the real world of ham radio. And uh, this um, created interest uh, of my uh, ham radio books that I would be uh, writing about in many of the ham magazines. And um, Master Publishing uh, had a program where I went through several of the different directors running uh, Master Publishing. Finally, went to Chicago for the call book to have a shot at it. Went to New York City, uh, where uh, a New York group uh, did publishing for a couple of years, working with Master. And finally, Master Publishing uh, came back to Chicago, as well as Texas, where uh, we remember W5YI, uh, Fred, Fred Maya. Fred was uh, very instrumental in uh, helping uh, get the books really rolling. And about the 1990s, because of my marine electronics interest, I saw a need for a GROL, commercial book. So I was one of the first to write a commercial book based on Q&As, as opposed to the excellent Kaufman, Electronic Communications by Schrader. These were wonderful books and continue to be in my library, but I found a lot of technicians after they would read those books would want sort of a review before taking the commercial exam. And that's when the commercial exams uh, began to become privatized like the ham radio exams in the 80s. So uh, the 90s were a busy one for me, uh, traveling all over the country, as well as continuing my uh, work with the Radio Club of America, where in the 90s they'd made me a fellow. I was quite honored for that. QCWA got me involved, and uh, it was it was just fun. And oh yeah, I got my extra as well, my advanced and my extra in the 80s and 90s, as well as of course passing the general on the first time. But boy, I was nervous on that 13 word per minute code test because the FCC would be like looking over your shoulder as you were doing uh, the code copy. And at the FCC office, this is a classic one, and you're probably one of the first to ever hear the whole story. At the FCC office, when that fellow would stand over you watching you copy, the headphones that we were used were high gain, and they were uh, picking up signals off of electromagnetic uh, loop that ran around the top of the FCC uh, testing room uh, uh, ceiling. And uh, I would regularly take students up there for code and theory tests. And I said, for the code test, I said, you're going to put on these inductive headphones. And as you move your head around, you're going to hear some hum and so on. But I said, don't worry. A voice will come over saying, this is an FCC and so on. Dick Bash was also coming out with stuff at that time. Dick wanted me to get involved with his operation. And uh, he would actually send students to go there and try and memorize the test questions as well as the code. 
but uh, at uh, the 80s and 90s, that's when the program was turned over to the private sector. But on uh, a few of the last tests at the FCC field offices, uh, I had a student go in there, and we were waiting in the waiting room, uh, waiting for the uh, 20 tests and then the 13 tests. And all of a sudden, my, my older ham, uh, this was a ham technician wanting to get his general, he was probably 70. God, old as I am right now recording this for you, Eric. Uh, that older ham, he grabbed his earphone. And he goes, oh, my gosh, what's coming over my earphone? And I said, what is coming over your, your uh, earphone? And these were hearing aids, of course. They were inductive hearing aids. And he says, listen. And I'm hearing, dee 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 CW. And I go, oh, my gosh, you're picking up CW on your inductive earphone. Let's go for a walk. We walked all the way down to the bottom floor of the FCC office. We walked outside. We walked down a block. And his earphones are still picking up the CW that the FCC was using for their ham tests. Oh, my gosh. So I thought, well, that would be fun to uh, make sure that my test preparation code tapes followed closely. I never, ever did an identical FCC. No, I never, I never did it. But I did my code tapes and CW practice for test tapes, very similar to the FCC. And people this day would say, Gordo, your code tapes are just like what the FCC was sending uh, uh, 40 years ago from their office. And I go, really? Hmm. And <laughs> the, um, my best reception is I have a uh, yellow dune buggy, and I still have it, Eric. And that yellow dune buggy, I wound about 500 turns of, gosh, uh, small little transformer type wire, made a big magnetic loop. I parked two blocks away. Uh, I could hear the elevators going up and down on this big building. I could hear traffic signals, uh, relays clicking. And then all of a sudden, this is an FCC Morse code exam. <laughs> so I had plenty of um, uh, the FCC signal that leaked out into the airwaves and not being on FCC property. I thought, well, heck, if the radio or if the uh, uh, inductive waves go this far, everyone is game. Um, I never told the, the story to Dick Bash. He would have loved to have done that. And I never uh, uh, ever did a code tape that was the actual message, but it certainly was close to their format. So that was a fun little story. And you'd be surprised how far we picked up those signals. You have been listening to part two of a three-part talk conducted by QSO Today host Eric Guth for Z1UG with Amateur Radio's number one cheerleader, Gordon West, WB6NOA. We will have the conclusion of Gordon's interview next week here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. This is the ARRL Propagation Forecast for Friday, June 5th. 
Things are looking up on the solar front. We had a tiny sunspot earlier this week, but it soon vanished, and now we have a new spot that's just moving into view. Like the previous sunspot, this one is definitely of the Cycle 25 variety, which is good news for those hoping to an end to the HF propagation doldrums. Assuming the trend continues, we may be starting to climb out of the solar minimum. We have some solar wind blasts on the way for the weekend and next week, but nothing that should cause serious problems. On VHF and UHF, 6 meters has been hot, with enormous transatlantic and transpacific band openings. If that wasn't enough, the spring weather is expected to bring some tropoducting over the next week in western Oregon, extreme southern California, the Midwest, and the Deep South. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. In late May, the USA team of the ARIS International Working Group became an incorporated nonprofit entity in the state of Maryland, officially becoming ARIS USA. This move allows ARIS USA to work as an independent organization soliciting grants and donations. They will continue promoting amateur radio and STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math within educational organizations and inspire, engage, and educate our next generation of space enthusiasts. ARIS USA will maintain its collaborative work with ARIS International as well as with U.S. sponsors, partners, and interest groups. The main goal of ARIS USA remains as connecting educational groups with opportunities to interact with astronauts aboard the International Space Station. ARIS USA will expand its human spaceflight opportunities with the space agencies beyond low Earth orbit, starting with lunar opportunities, including the Lunar Gateway. Becoming an independent organization has been discussed for quite some time, ARIS USA lead Frank Bauer, KA3HDO, said. The scope and reach of what ARIS accomplishes each year has grown significantly since its humble beginnings in 1996. Our working group status made it cumbersome to establish partnerships, sign agreements, and solicit grants. These can only be done as an established organization. Bauer further elaborated, the ARIS USA team remains deeply indebted to our working group partners, ARRL and AMSAT, who enabled the birth of ARIS, and our steadfast sponsors, NASA Space Communications and Navigation and the ISS National Lab. ARIS USA aims to keep earning high regards from all these partners and sponsors. ARIS USA has applied for USA IRS tax-exempt status as a 501c3. When that arrives, they will be able to accept tax-exempt donations. In the meantime, donations can still be made through AMSAT for ARIS. Thanks to ARIS.org for this story. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. AMSAT says the aim of its Developing Greater Orbit, Larger Footprint, or GOLF satellite program is to place amateur radio transponders in low Earth orbit, called LEO, medium Earth orbit, called MEO, and eventually high Earth orbit, which is called HEO. The goal of the GOLF program is to work by steps through a series of increasingly capable spacecraft to learn skills and systems for which we do not yet have any low-risk experience. 
Among these are active attitude control, deployable steerable solar panels, radiation tolerance for commercial off-the-shelf components in higher orbits, and propulsion, AMSAT explains. The first step is to be one or more LEO satellites similar to the existing AO-91 and AO-92, but with technologies needed for higher orbits. With proven technologies, an interim-high LEO or MEO satellite would follow on. AMSAT says the eventual goal is a HEO satellite similar to AO-10, AO-13, and AO-40, but at a currently affordable cost combined with significantly enhanced capabilities, which, in turn, will allow the use of much less complex ground stations. The board of directors of the YASB Foundation has announced grants of $5,000 each to the Foundation for Amateur Radio and to ARRL scholarship programs for 2020. The board also named Joe Eisenberg, K0NEB, as a recipient of the YASB Excellence Award, this honor recognizes individuals and groups who, through their own service, creativity, effort, and dedication, have made a significant contribution to amateur radio. The Yasme Excellence Award is in the form of a cash grant and an individually engraved crystal globe. The Yasme Foundation recognized Eisenberg for his contributions to amateur radio through his kit-building seminars, as seen at the Dayton Hamvention and other ham gatherings. He is also the editor of the kit-building column for CQ Magazine. Joe exemplifies the give and back and self-teaching spirit of ham radio, especially in training youngsters, the Foundation said in granting the award. The ASME Foundation has made a supporting grant to the Open Research Institute to enable completion of ORI's Phase 4 ground station project. ORI is a non-profit IRS 501c3 research and development org that provides all of its work to the general public under the principles of open source and open access to research. The Phase 4 ground station project is an open-source satellite ground station for amateur satellite service. Phase 4 would provide designs and equipment for future 5 GHz uplinks and 10 GHz downlink satellites, the so-called 5-and-dime paradigm that AMSAT has embraced for its future microwave satellites. Michelle Thompson, W5NYV, leads the Phase 4 group project. WSJT-X version 2.2.0 is now in general availability release after a short stint in beta or release candidate status. WSJT-X version 2.2 offers 10 different protocols or modes, FT4, FT8, JT4, JT9, JT65, QRA64, ISCAT, MSK64, Whisper, and Echo. The first six are designed for reliable contacts under weak signal conditions, and they use nearly identical message structure and source encoding. JT65 and QRA64 were designed for EME on VHF-UHF bands, but have also proven very effective for worldwide very low power communication on HF bands. FT8 is operationally similar but four times faster and less sensitive by a few decibels, developer Joe Taylor, K1JT, explains in the version 2.2.0 user guide. FT4 is faster still and especially well suited for contesting. 
Taylor noted that even with their shorter transmit-receive sequences, FD4 and FD8 are considered slow modes because their message frames are sent only once per transmission. All fast modes in WSJTX send their message frames repeatedly as many times as will fit into the transmit sequence length, he explained. Compared with FD8, FD4 is 3.5 dB less sensitive and requires 1.6 times the bandwidth, but it offers the potential for twice the contact rate. New in WSJT-X version 2.2.0, FD8 decoding is now spread over three intervals, the first starting at 11.8 seconds into a receive sequence and typically yielding around 85% of the possible decodes. This means users see most decodes much sooner than with previous versions. A second processing step starts at 13.5 seconds and a third at 14.7 seconds. Overall decoding yield on crowded bands is improved by 10% or more, Taylor said. Other changes. Signal-to-noise estimates no longer saturate at plus 20 dB, and large signals in the passband no longer cause the signal-to-noise of weaker signals to be biased low. Times written to the all.txt cumulative journal file are now correct, even when decoding occurs after the transmit-receive sequence boundary. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. When climbing on a commercial tower, we need to be aware of RF safety laws. Exposure has been the subject of debate lately, especially since the guidelines have been introduced into the amateur's vocabulary. There are certain requirements you need to be aware of. Some are required by law, and some are not. This all depends on the tower and how it is loaded with commercial services. For those of you who are not aware of the federally mandated safety guidelines, there's a general set of rules about working safely with sources of energy. Lockout, tagout is a phrase which refers to the use of safety devices to help prevent accidental injury to workers servicing equipment. On towers, lockout, tagout can include seals on breaker switches, inline coax switches, or other similar devices. I'm not going to refer to any specifics, but to good personal safety guidelines. If you are working on a shorter tower with perhaps a few paging systems, you need to consider exposure to RF as well as the risk of injury from contact with active antennas. When you are working on or near an antenna or its feed line, you must ensure that it is difficult or impossible for someone to turn on the transmitter while you are on the tower. If you are at 250 feet and your partner is on the ground, another person working in the transmitter shack could easily turn on the transmitter that is attached to your body. It is your responsibility to unplug the transmitter's power cord or remove the fuses, mark or lock the breaker so anyone else not involved in your work cannot accidentally turn on the injury-causing transmitter. 
Before you start working, make sure everyone in the area is aware of what should or should not be turned on and install some sort of locking device. A cable tie is suitable as a lockout in many circumstances. I sometimes put cable ties through the holes in the prongs of a 115 volt plug to prevent it from being plugged in while I'm on the tower. If I'm working on a hard wired system, I may remove the coax and cable tie it to something inside the cabinet along with something like my car keys to prevent me from forgetting to reconnect the coax as well as preventing it from getting turned on and cooking my fingers off. When working on a crowded tower, you may have to arrange to climb at pre-scheduled off-air times to minimize exposure to powerful RF fields. I will not climb near an active broadcast antenna and prefer to climb near active paging system antennas during off-peak times. This is another reason why I prefer to climb at night. The essence of lockout-tagout is to ensure that the system you are working on is at or very close to a zero potential energy state. Equally important is that the energy supply to the device is locked in a zero energy state by any reasonable means which would prevent a casual user from activating the device while you are working on it. Some simple methods of locking out a transmitter would include shutting off a breaker and locking it in the off position, removing fuses and locking the fuse box shut, switching off a breaker and using a hardware store breaker lock and tag to mark it out of service. For the home-based amateur, shutting off the power to the radios connected to the, TV, to the tower is a good beginning. Unplugging power cords or unhooking coax wires is another. Here's another good reason to have a ground crew. They can also become involved in lockout-tagout. Just remember to lower each device to a zero energy state before starting the climb. Sometimes this is not possible, but always plan for the safest climb. After doing it several times, it'll become second nature to you. There's a lot more on lockout-tagout than I have time to cover here, so if you're climbing for a living, be sure to review your employer's safety and exposure guidelines. Another place to look for information is the OSHA webpage or your state's electrical safety codes. Remember, you cannot tell if an antenna is transmitting just by looking at it. Direct contact with a transmitting antenna can leave you with an instantaneous and very painful burn. Getting a second degree burn on the palm of your hand at 150 feet on a tower would ruin anyone's day. Also keep in mind that just because a transmitter is unplugged, it may still offer a small voltage difference between the tower and that antenna. It is impossible to attain the exact same ground potential between all the systems on a tower. So the risk of a shock while climbing will always be present. Just be careful when you touch antennas on towers. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Clear, sober minds must be in charge. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. The Frank Ford Radio Club Scholarship will join the growing list of scholarships administered by the ARRL Foundation. The Frank Ford Radio Club is a very active contesting club centered in Albertus, Pennsylvania, dedicated to increasing operating skill and technical expertise through radio sport. 
The club's motto is Proficiency Through Competition. The scholarship will be $1,500, with the first scholarship expected to be awarded in 2020. Applicants must be a U.S. citizen and hold a valid FCC-issued amateur radio license. The scholarship is open to graduating high school seniors, undergraduates, and U.S. military veterans. Applicants must be pursuing a degree in electronics, electrical engineering, computer science, or related fields at any accredited college, university, or trade school that has established programs in the field of study. Preference will be given to applicants residing within 175 miles of Albertus, Pennsylvania. The ARRL Foundation will determine award recipients after evaluating all applications and disperse the award funds directly to the chosen institution of higher learning. The COVID-19 Stay Home event held over this weekend, June 6th and 7th, will enter the top 63 event participants into a drawing for a week-long trip, either to Finland and a visit to the OH Summer Camp and the DX Summertime Activities, plus a visit to Radio Arcala's OH-8X Superstation, or to Brazil, including participation in the CW Worldwide Phone, or CW, and a visit to the PS2T, or ZW5B Superstations. These trips are scheduled for the 2021 period because of the current coronavirus pandemic, the top 30 multi-mode scores, top 5 single-mode scores for each mode, and the top 3 scores from each continent will receive an online certificate and may participate in the free drawing. A Yesu FT891 transceiver is also being given away as the grand prize. As part of the global stay-home event, four young members of the New York City DX Association will operate a W2I Stay Home from a remote location station in Eastport, Maine. The team will set up a server for live updates on Club L Log and a real-time streaming via YouTube. O3JR hopes to be on the air for the event from the Market Reef as OJOJR. He will remain on Market Reef for the entire week. OJOJR will be an event multiplier. Grad student Christina Collins, KD8OXT, in Cleveland, Ohio, is looking for radio amateurs and shortwave listeners, particularly in Africa and Asia, to help her collect data for an experiment. On June 21st, an annual solar eclipse will cross eastern Africa and Asia, affecting the ionosphere and, in turn, radio propagation. We're interested in having amateur radio operators around the path of totality collect Doppler shift data on that day, which can be performed using an HF rig connected to a computer running FL Digi, she said. Details of the experiment are on the HamSci website. Two data collection exercises will take place starting with a control day on June 14th UTC, followed by the event on June 20th through 22nd UTC, which encompasses the annual solar eclipse across eastern Africa and Asia on June 21st. Interested operators may sign up online or contact Christina Collins directly. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
technical papers are solicited for presentation at the upcoming ARRL Tapper Digital Communications Conference set for September 11th through the 13th. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, this year's conference will be held online. Papers will also be published in the conference proceedings. Authors do not need to participate in the conference to have their papers included in the proceedings. The submission deadline is August 15th. Submit papers via email to Matty Weinberg, KB1EIB, at Matty, M-A-T-Y, at A-R-R-L dot O-R-G. Papers will be published exactly as submitted, and authors will retain all rights. The 2020 Huntsville Hamfest has been canceled due to the pandemic, the event's board of directors has announced. The Huntsville Hamfest was sanctioned as the 2020 ARRL Southeastern Division Convention. Chairman Mark Brown, N4BCD, issued a statement on Thursday, June 4th, saying that with deep sadness, the board has voted to cancel the Huntsville Hamfest. We make this decision for the safety of our visitors, vendors, and volunteers. We'll be back and hope to see you back at the world's friendliest ham fest on August 21st and 22nd of 2021. Full refunds to prepaid commercial and flea market vendors will be processed via the mode in which the payment was made. Online ticket purchases will be credited to PayPal accounts. The Dragon Amateur Radio Club would like to introduce their next special event station, GB0MZX. At 1910 on the 15th of June, 1920, the world-renowned soprano Dame Nellie Melba stepped forward to a microphone in a makeshift studio within the Marconi factory in Chelmsford to sing the song Home Sweet Home. This was the start of the world's first advertised radio broadcast using the Chelmsford factory transmitter call sign MZX and was listened to by thousands. Little did anyone know then that within two short years the BBC would be formed and broadcasting would have such a huge cultural effect on the nation, indeed the world. Therefore, the Dragon Amateur Radio Club are going to run a special event call sign of GB0MZX from their own homes to celebrate this event and will be open to full intermediate, and foundation license holders to take part. At this point, we would like to thank Ofcom for allowing all three licensed tiers to operate from their own homes without direct supervision during the current pandemic lockdown. The event will run from 0001 UTC on Friday, June 12th until 2359 UTC on Sunday, June 21st and we shall be attempting to keep the station on the air for several hours a day. There will be award certificates to collect for QSOs with GB0MZX, and full details will appear on the QRZ.com page this coming weekend. And finally this week, thanks to a sharp-eyed amateur radio operator, a mother and four children were rescued from a minivan that had driven off the road near Logan, Utah, and into a river where it ended up lodged against some rocks. Utah Highway Patrol Sergeant Cade Brenchley told the local newspaper that a radio operator spotted the van shortly after the vehicle came to rest against the rocks, and he contacted city dispatchers. 
According to the newspaper story, state troopers, firefighters, and the county search team responded and closed off the Logan Canyon area for five hours so the rescue could proceed. All five were safely removed and reported to be uninjured. Brenchley said the vehicle had only four to five inches of water inside and the windshield was intact. He said, we were extremely lucky there. The five were treated at the scene by paramedics and taken for further examination to the regional hospital. Authorities did not identify the amateur radio operator. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.